own, was first established, you know, Christianity began to spread quickly through the Roman Empire. Even in Paul's day, he said that uh, the gospel's gone into all of the earth. But then, as the Christians grew, they began to be persecuted. The devil wanted to wipe them out. Christianity was declared religio illicite. Because there was so much connection between Christians and Jews, they both used the same holy book. And when the Jews rebelled against Rome, the Romans said Christians and Jews are forbidden religion, and they were terribly persecuted. You've heard about how Nero fiddled as Rome burned, and he blamed the Christians, and Christians were burnt at the stake, and they were fed to the lions, and they died in the Colosseums, were slaughtered by gladiators. And uh, the devil hoped to wipe out Christianity through persecution. But the more they persecuted them, the more they grew. So then the devil came up with plan B. He said, if I can't destroy them from the outside, I will destroy them from the inside. I'll legalize it, and I'll dilute Christianity. I'll commingle it with some of the pagan religions. And with the conversion, or at least the pretended conversion, of Constantine the Great, the Roman emperor, he legalized Christianity. His mother, Catherine, claimed to be a Christian. He said he was going to conquer under the sign of the cross. Everybody suddenly wanted to be a Christian. And all the pagans in Rome, they began to... uh, say, well, you know, we want to be Christians, and they knew almost nothing about it. Constantine ordered his army to march through the Tiber River, and he said, now you're all baptized. You're Christians. He didn't really understand the teaching of baptism. They didn't know. Jesus said, go teach and baptize. They weren't taught. They had no idea. They went into the water dry pagans, and they came up wet pagans. They didn't know. And a lot of the pagan priests didn't want to lose their status, and they said, we'll convert to Christianity. And they said, but what do we do with all our idols? All over Rome. I think one historian said there were more idols in Rome than there were shingles on the roofs. There were idols everywhere. You can read about that, and Paul writes about it in, uh, or Luke writes about it in the book of Acts. So they had idols of Mercury and Jupiter, Apollos and Venus and and, uh, Diana of Ephesus. They said, what do we do with our idols? They said, well, we can win more people from paganism if we give them Christian names. And so they started to rename the idols, Peter, James, John, Mary, Jesus. But idolatry is forbidden in the Bible, but they said, well, you know, it's just to help them visualize these characters as they pray. And Christianity went through a, a major change where it went from being a religion of faith and love till eventually they were given an army and they began to use force. You've all heard of the Crusades. The church in Rome... At what point does it say the church moved from Jerusalem to Rome? The church in Rome became the ruling power for over a thousand years. And it became a political religious institution. Indeed, to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church is the only religion that is also a government. The Vatican is an independent country, and the Pope will address the United Nations. They don't let other pastors do that. And so something happened. And they began to persecute people that did not go along with what uh, the Bible teaches. And so we'll say more about this another night, but this was a big transition that happened that it talks about. Question number four. Daniel was told that this little horn would defile the sanctuary. How long till it would be cleansed? So what happened is with the commingling of Christianity and paganism, For example, where in the Bible does it talk about purgatory, that you have to get burnt a little while to get cleansed of your sin? It's not in the Bible. Where does it say you're supposed to pray in front of idols, or is that forbidden? 
Where in the Bible does it say you must confess your sins to a priest? A lot of these things began to come into... And there's good Christian people in every church. I hope everyone's understanding what I'm saying. I'm just giving you history. And this is something that, of course, Protestants have talked about for centuries. You don't hear much about it now because it's probably not considered politically correct. But this is what the prophecy was saying, is that a lot of truth would be lost. The truth would be cast to the ground. How long till this sanctuary would be cleansed? All right, we've got to stop for a moment and reestablish for any that didn't catch it what that sanctuary is. In the Old Testament, when God told Moses to build a sanctuary, he said it's patterned after the one in heaven. So you got the model sanctuary on earth, the tabernacle. you got one in heaven. How many is that? Two. One in heaven, one on earth. That was destroyed. Then there was Solomon's temple. Then you've got the one in heaven. How many is that? Two. Right? Then that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then you got the temple of Ezra, Nehemiah, King Herod. That's the one Jesus taught in. You got one on earth, one in heaven. How many? Two. And then that was destroyed. And now how many are there? Two. Because Jesus said, destroy this temple made with hands, and I will make one without hands in three days. But he spoke of his body, the church. So does God still have a sanctuary on earth? Has that sanctuary been defiled by the devil and false teachings? Has the truth been cast to the ground? Obviously, if there are 400 different Christian denominations and they disagree on certain crucial theology points, they're not all right. Uh, There are some false teachings that have kind of come into the Christian church because people have neglected the word of God. The sanctuary in heaven, whenever you pray... And you ask God to forgive your sins. Christ takes your sins and uh, he pleads them before the Father. But is a time coming when there's no more sin in the universe? The sanctuary on earth, the church, and the sanctuary in heaven are going to be cleansed. And there's a process in that cleansing. And he, he wants to cleanse you. See, Jesus cleansed the temple. First temple that needs cleansing is your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord wants to cleanse that. Amen? Let me just give you a couple more verses on this. For those who missed it, speaking of the beast power, there will come a falling away. It's when the truth is cast to the ground. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself he is God. And we just read in 1 Corinthians 3.17, If any man defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. How did Jesus feel when they defiled the temple? He chased them all out, didn't he? Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. And of the household of God. And we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are builded together for a habitation of God. God not only wants to dwell in you, your body temple, God wants to dwell in his people, the church temple. You still with me? 1 Peter 2.5, you also as lively stones, living stones, are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then you go to Revelation 3. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, I don't want to go to heaven and be a pillar. You just want to, all day long, you're a pillar? Or is he talking about you're going to be part 
of the household of God in that kingdom. So when the Antichrist power defiles the sanctuary, and when he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God, that temple that needs cleansing is the temple on earth, his people, and there's a cleansing that happens in the temple in heaven. Let's go back to our vision. Daniel chapter 4, and this is question 4. Daniel was told that this little horn, and of course it's in Daniel 8, this little horn would defile the sanctuary. How long until it would be cleansed? We showed that to you twice now. For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So we get this time period. How did Daniel respond when he saw the little horn power persecuting God's people and obscure the truth? At the end of this vision, when he sees the persecution, he sees what the future of God's people are. Daniel's an old man at this point. Daniel 8, 27, he says, I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick for days, and I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. He knew the part about Greece and Persia and Rome, but he didn't understand this antichrist power, this little horn power that was going to persecute. So before the angel can finally give it all to Daniel, he faints, which means the angel has to come back and give him one of the most important things, which is what? Starting point for the time period in the prophecy. At the beginning of your supplications, go to Daniel chapter 9 now. I started reading too soon. I want you to go to Daniel 9, and um, here is the second part of this prophecy. Daniel fainted, so the angel comes back, and Daniel offers his prayer, saying, Lord, how long will your people be captives here in Persia? He was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. He said, when are they going to go home? When is the Messiah going to come? Is the prayer of Daniel's heart. And go to verse 20, Daniel 9, verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication to the Lord, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, this is the angel, at the beginning, meaning chapter 8, being caused to fly swiftly, he reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me, and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have come now forth to give you skill and understanding. Daniel chapter 8, he said, I fainted, no one understood. Daniel chapter 9, he says, I've come back, even though it's quite a while later, to help you understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you. Daniel starts praying, and an angel comes from heaven. Do angels travel the speed of sound? which is about 700 miles an hour, depending on your altitude and the air density. Speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. Or do angels travel the speed of thought? That angel went from God to earth in a very short time, being caused to fly swiftly. Talk about swiftly. No highway patrolman is going to catch an angel. And it says that I've come to give you understanding. I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Understand what vision? Chapter 8 is the one where he fainted before he was finished. Here you go. All right. Everyone awake? One of the most important prophecies in the Bible. When I first understood this, I literally jumped up and down. I'll try not to do that tonight. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. And for your, for the holy city... 70 weeks. How many days in a week? Seven. Am I going fast? <laughs> seven days in a week. 70 weeks is how many days? 70 times seven? 490. 
Did Peter once say, Jesus, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. How much longer was God going to bear with the Jewish nation to fulfill their destiny? Their destiny was to introduce the Messiah to the world. That's what happens in this book. He says, for, for, your, uh, for the people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Lots happening here. To bring in everlasting righteousness. This is the mission of Jesus. To seal up the vision, to complete the vision that we study. To anoint the most holy. Who is the most holy that was anointed? Jesus. This prophecy is telling us when Christ would begin his ministry and be anointed with the Holy Spirit. The word Christ, Christos, you've heard of christening a ship? It's anointing. The word in Hebrew is Messiah. They both mean anointing. It means he was filled and flooded and saturated with the Holy Spirit. God in man is what you have in Jesus. So 70 weeks. So the overall prophecy is 70 weeks. A day in prophecy equals what? A year. We'll give you the verses on that in just a moment. Know therefore and understand, I'm in verse 25, that from the going forth of the command, here's the starting point for the vision, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 and the street will be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. He's foretelling what happened in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the, the temple and the streets and the walls. And after the 62 weeks, you've got the, the um, seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And after this time period, it says the Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. The Messiah was cut off for who? For you and me. And the people of the prince who will come shall destroy the city and the sanctuaries. Talking about when the Romans came, this next power was the Romans, and they would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. This broke Daniel's heart. And the end will be with a flood, meaning a lot of people, armies would sweep over. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Going back to the Messiah, in verse 27, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. Who caused the sacrifice and the offering to cease? When Jesus died on the cross and the veil was rent in the temple, do we sacrifice lambs anymore? The Jews don't even sacrifice lambs anymore. And on the wing of abominations shall one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined shall be poured out on the desolate. So you've got the abomination of desolation identified here. You've got the coming of the Messiah. I'm going to give it to you again if that was fast. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you. So the angel comes to explain this vision in Daniel chapter 9, and it's going on with the vision of Daniel chapter 8. In the next chapter, the angel explains the prophecy, and this is question 6, in greater detail. How long was the time period not previously described in the vision from chapter 8? What's the answer? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to seal up the vision and the prophecy, to complete this earlier prophecy. But he's adding another time period. Number seven, what was the starting point for the 2,300-day and the 70-week time prophecies? We've got two prophecies that overlay each other. They've got one starting period given in both chapters. It says, know therefore and understand, this is Daniel 9.25, 
from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you got a starting point. How in the world are we going to find in history the starting point for this command to restore and build Jerusalem? I got good news for you. It's in the Bible. In Ezra chapter 7, the decree of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, is given, and it's a very easily established date in history. It is 457 B.C. Now, you should have a chart in your lessons, and hopefully you will be able to obtain the lessons who are watching. You'll have that as well. So here's our starting point, but we've got to just reiterate. When it says uh, 490 days, in prophecy a day is a year. You can look here in Ezekiel 4.6. I have laid on you a day for each year. Numbers 14.34. Each day for a year. Another prophecy in uh, Luke chapter 13. The enemies of Jesus came and said, King Herod, he's killed John the Baptist. You better be careful. You might be next. Jesus said, go tell that fox. I teach, do cures, cast out devils today, tomorrow, and the third day I will be completed or perfected. Jesus made that statement about six months in his ministry when John the Baptist was killed. He did not preach for three more days. He preached for three more years. Even Jesus used the day for the year principle in his prophecy. So don't be thinking literal days because nothing significant happened 2,300 days after Daniel got this prophecy. The angel said that if you were to count 69 weeks from 457 B.C., you would come to the Messiah, the Prince. Does it happen? Look at this. You can read in Acts 10, verse 37, that the word you know after the baptism how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Jesus was anointed. You remember when he was baptized and he came up out of the water and the heavens were open. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Christ does no miracle before his baptism. Nothing recorded. And he begins his public ministry from that point on. Meets with the devil in the wilderness and defeats him. And Jesus then taught for three and a half years. Now, I hope you won't be upset with me. But do you know that uh, Christmas uh, was not December 25th? I'm not the Grinch who wants to steal your Christmas, but be at least intelligent about it. We know Jesus died in the spring, right? The Bible says he taught for three and a half years. If you count back three and a half, and he was baptized on his 30th birthday. That's what it says. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. You count back three and a half years from Passover. And it tells us that he would be born in the fall. The fall was his birthday. But we don't know the exact date. So we're not going to make a big fuss about uh, people celebrating uh, December. Is everyone clear on that? Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I'm giving you a lot of information here. So Jesus is anointed. And then you read in Matthew 1.22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus came. It tells us it was in 27 A.D., in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He was 30 years of age. Christ was born about 4 B.C., 
I know that confuses people, but they got the ADBC dating method established before they really knew the facts. Here's a chart, and I know there's a ton of stuff that you're going to see on the screen up here. Maybe they can put that up for our local audience. So if you go from 457 BC, go 483 years, it comes to AD 27, the very time when Jesus was baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he began his ministry. But we haven't gotten the whole 490 yet. We just get the beginning of that 483 years. There's still one week left. It says, in the midst of that last week, he causes the sacrifice to cease. Jesus preaches three and a half years. He dies on the cross. The veil in the temple is rent. He causes the sacrificial system to be fulfilled in him. That's all nailed to the cross. But why is there another three and a half years? All right, go with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Not only did Jesus preach three and a half years, Jesus then exclusively preached three and a half years to the Jewish nation. And here we're going to find the story where Stephen is stoned. And you can read chapter 7. And hang on, let me get the right verse for you. Go to verse 57. After Stephen presents the gospel to the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, he says that we've crucified our Savior. They plug their ears. They don't want to hear it. They gnash their teeth. They run upon him. What does it mean if a Supreme Court of a nation plugs their ears? It's not good for the nation. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Jesus was brought out of the city. Jesus was stoned. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those that killed him. No, Jesus was crucified. He prayed for the forgiveness of those that executed him, just like Stephen. It says that they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It tells us that they divided Jesus' clothing. The same thing that happened to Jesus happens to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Three and a half years later, Stephen dies. And Paul is there at the execution. Paul is converted he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Now the gospel goes to everybody. You realize until the stoning of Stephen, the Jews, the apostles, were only preaching to Jews. This is in the lesson here. I'm going to give you some uh, revision of that again to help remember it. So that chart's there. I think it's also in your lesson. 483 years plus 457 goes to A.D. 26. But keep in mind, there's still one more year you add between the year 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. There is no year zero. That adds up to 27 A.D. This is when Jesus was baptized. What was to take place next in the prophecy? After the 62 weeks, you got the seven weeks, and the 62 weeks, at 69, Messiah would be cut off. Can that be misunderstood? Messiah is who? Jesus. In his prime, you know, the average person lives three score and ten years, Jesus died 33 and a half. In his prime, he lays down his life at, in his best for you and me. He'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he'll bring to end the sacrifice and the offering. Now, friends, this is a verse that we can't get wrong. Let me just tell you, I've got a lot of evangelical friends. They say the one who confirms the covenant is the Antichrist. I'm telling you, and a lot of other Protestant scholars are saying, it's not the Antichrist, it is Jesus. 
Where in the Bible do you find that the Antichrist makes a covenant with anybody? There's no salvation covenant. Does God have a covenant with his people? Did Jesus come to confirm that covenant? He is the fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham, that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. The covenant of salvation by faith is confirmed through Jesus for three and a half years, half of a week. In the midst of that last seven, he dies. Well, but how does he continue to confirm the covenant after he's died? Good question. It's in the Bible. Look in Hebrews chapter 2. You go to Hebrews chapter 2. And we have this prophecy given to us. You go to Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, verse 3 and a half, and was confirmed? The covenant was confirmed through Jesus, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. For another three and a half years, he confirmed the covenant just to the Jews through the apostles. Christ said to the apostles, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You need to complete the work that I've, I've uh, started. And even though the Jewish nation has officially rejected me, I am long-suffering and merciful. I want you to continue to preach the gospel to the Jews. And many were converted. When 3,000 were converted at Pentecost, what was their religion? Jewish. They were devout Jews out of every nation under heaven. 5,000 converted a few days later. What were they? Jews. The Bible tells us in Acts, many of the priests, even Pharisees and Sadducees, people like Nicodemus and Joseph, were converted. He said, I'm going to give you first chance. The gospel comes, it says, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so he confirmed the covenant for that last seven years of the 490 years with the Jewish nation. In the middle of that last seven years, Christ dies on the cross. He causes the sacrifice to cease. You remember where it says the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom? On the Passover, no less. The real Passover lamb was dying on the cross outside the city. Now, even after Jesus died and ascended to heaven, the Jews tried to revamp the sacrificial system but I'll tell you, after that event there in AD 31, nothing was ever the same. And people who are looking for the Jews to rebuild the temple today, I hear Christians and evangelicals talking about it, but you talk to Jews, I don't meet Jews anywhere. And like I said, I come from a Jewish family. They're not talking about rebuilding the temple. I don't know any Jews anywhere that are saying, I wish we could start sacrificing lambs again. I wish we could build a temple to house the Ten Commandments and we don't know where they are. There might be a few ultra-Orthodox Jews that are saying that, but that's not the temple that needed cleansing. It's us now. Jesus already took care of that a long time ago, the other temple, because the veil is taken away in Christ, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, through faith, you and I can boldly go before the Father through Jesus. We have a high priest in his presence. Amen? Jesus told his disciples to preach first to which group of people? This is review of what I just read. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, but go rather where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, I thought Jesus wanted them to go everywhere. To no, no. He said, don't go everywhere yet. The Jews have the first opportunity because they've got the whole foundation in the scriptures. And if you can convert the Jews and then send them out as evangelists, then you'll really reach people. But first reach them. So that first three and a half years after Christ, they were preaching to Jews. Number 11, what warning did Jesus give to his chosen people? 
the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Remember, Jesus cursed a fig tree because it didn't bear fruit. It was kind of like the Jewish nation at that time where they had all the trappings of religion, but they didn't have the fruits of the Spirit. And Jesus cursed that fig tree and said, no man will ever eat fruit from you again. So now the blessings were to go to whosoever will. Everyone really becomes a spiritual Jew when we accept Christ. Number 12, so what is this other nation spoken of by Jesus which would become his chosen people? Now, God still has a heart for the Jews. Don't misunderstand. But the Bible is clear. In Christ now, Galatians tells us there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. Christ is not restricting it. He's expanding the promises that he gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to everybody. That's why Jesus said many will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And some of the natural kingdom, children of the kingdom, will be in outer darkness. Uh, We can't be trusting our DNA for salvation. It's based on faith. Say amen, please. I want the folks at home to know you are actually here. (laughs) And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Now, how many of you would say, I am Christ? Have you accepted Jesus? Shalom. You become a spiritual Jew. The Gentiles are grafted into the stock of Israel. There is no new covenant made with Gentiles. It is made with the house of Israel. We become at least spiritual Jews when we accept Jesus. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Romans 2.28, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. It's not physical circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart now. So let's review the 490-year prophecy very quickly. You go from 457... To 27 AD, Jesus is baptized. That's the first 483 years that we saw. Then you go three and a half years from Christ's ministry. He dies on the cross. He tells the disciples, wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, do not go to the Gentiles. Begin in Jerusalem and Judea. Then go to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly what they did. They preached first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He confirmed the covenant in person for three and a half years. Then he did the last three and a half through those who walked with him. And even the enemies of the apostles said, we can tell they had been with Jesus. They'd spent so much time with Jesus, they sounded and acted like Christ. This is the full 490-year prophecy. You know what this means? Christ came right on time as Daniel foretold. He did exactly what he said. What happened with the nation's happened exactly. This is what made me jump up and down years ago in the cave when I read this in my Bible. I thought, that means he said, I'm coming again. He's going to come again, just like he promised too. Amen? The time prophecies in the Bible never fail. This has stumped the critics. At the end, 34 AD, Stephen is stoned. Paul is converted. The gospel, it says, a persecution arose in Jerusalem, scattering the disciples everywhere, preaching the gospel to Jew and Gentile. And that happens in chapter 9, Paul is converted. In chapter 10, Peter preaches to the first Gentiles at the house of Cornelius in uh, Caesarea. And so all of it happened exactly as Daniel said in his prophecy. Paul is converted and he's sent to the Gentiles. Number 13, according to the angel who spoke with Daniel, what would happen at the end of the 2,300 years? Oh, that's right, Doug. We started out in Daniel 8 said the sanctuary would not be cleansed for 2,300 years. What's talking about there? For 2,300 days, and a day is what? 
a year. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So, if you go from 457 and you go 2,300 years, that comes to when? 1844. That was a very interesting year in history. I had a whole list of things that happened in 1844. I do remember the first electronic message, the first text, was in 1844. You've heard of uh, Samuel Morse? He sent the first Morse code message. You know what it was? Scripture. What hath God wrought? Very interesting. That changed communications of the world. Now, the Bible tells us that the sanctuary would be cleansed. There's a judgment that begins. Number 14. Whose cases are being considered in this pre-advent judgment? You realize that some judgment takes place before Jesus comes. Follow me. When Jesus comes, is he giving rewards? Does he know who's saved and lost? The Bible says he'll come and reward every man according to his works. Does it make sense to you that some judgment must take place before he comes? With whom does that judgment take place? That's what this question is. Judgment, 1 Peter 4.17, judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin of us, at us, what is the end of those that obey not the gospel? There is a judgment, and we'll say more about this, so if it hasn't all come together, we're going to answer your questions and we're going to expand on that. What will be examined in this first phase of the judgment? The dead are judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. goes on and says, in Ecclesiastes 12:14, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. And then, finally, what's the criteria in that judgment? Who will be judged by the law of liberty. So, before the Lord comes, there's going to be a revival of truth. God is going to be cleansing his sanctuary. There's a cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. All through the ages, people have said they're Christians, but the books are going to be opened before Christ comes and evaluate who were truly, uh, genuinely converted. Talks about this judgment in Daniel uh, chapter 7, when the books are open. The Ancient of Days is there. It's all portrayed in the Bible. There's also a cleansing of the sanctuary on earth. How many sanctuaries are there? Two. What's the sanctuary on earth? You are the temple of God. What did the sanctuary on earth need cleansing from? The truth was cast to the ground. In 1844, God began a movement where the Bible truths that had been lost on a number of subjects, salvation by faith, that you're not supposed to pray to idols, the Sabbath truth, and many other things, a restoration began to take place. And that movement right now is spreading around the world. It's one of the fastest growing Protestant groups in the world today. And in this cleansing, is, it, is God done cleansing his church on earth? No, he'd be here if he was. When Michael stands up, when a judge stands up, it means case is closed. He issues decree. When Michael stands up and this great time of trouble comes, it's over. He's still cleansing the sanctuary in heaven. He's still cleansing the sanctuary on earth. You want to be part of that group. You want to be part of that sanctuary, his people, those living stones in the last days. Who is my accuser in this final judgment? That serpent of old called the devil was cast down to the earth. The Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. The devil is there perpetually accusing he tries to point out our sins. You can see him in the book of Job. He's accusing Job. And you can see in the book of Zechariah, he's accusing Zechariah or Joshua, the high priest. And, and you think the devil, he's got all the goods. The devil will tempt you to sin and then he'll turn you in for sinning. 
So how can we survive this judgment when the devil's got all this evidence against us? He's the prosecuting attorney. Good thing is you've got a great defense attorney. That's Jesus. Must I stand alone in this pre-advent judgment? No, the Bible promises John chapter 2, verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And again, John 1, uh, verse 2, and First uh, uh, John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Everything in this prophecy that has been foretold has happened. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you've got the seven churches. The last age of the church, who knows what it's called? Laodicea. You know what the word Laodicea means? Judging of the people. You and I are living in that last age of the church that began in 1844. In the Jewish year, all year long, the high priest went through the daily sacrifices. Now, when Christ first ascended to heaven, he went into the Holy of Holies. He was enthroned. He activated the heavenly sanctuary. He was coronated, you might say, received his kingdom. At least in heavenly, it was his ministry was approved. Then he began his work as our high priest. But in the Jewish economy, at the end of the year, the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies to do a cleansing process, to cleanse the people from their sins permanently. When Christ comes again, the Bible says, he is coming without sin unto salvation. Is Jesus going to be burying our sins forever? Or at some point, is sin going to be eradicated from the universe? Revelation is very clear. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. And Christ is, he's, the books are being evaluated. You read in Ezekiel chapter 9, it talks about this judgment. And it says, begin with the ancient men before the sanctuary. A judgment in the house of God. There's going to be a cleansing of God's people. When Jesus went into that sanctuary with his court and said, take these things hence, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. He not only wants that for his church, he's cleansing the sanctuary from the sins that have been stored in heaven. There's a judgment going on, but he wants to cleanse your temple. Would you like him to come in and do his work and to cleanse you and prepare you for his return? I'd like to invite John and, and Kelly to come up and John's going to sing a verse of a familiar song and then we're going to have prayer together. And I hope you'll be praying in your hearts at this time and say, Lord, wow, these prophecies are true. Come into my heart and cleanse me.